0: What's up everybody? Welcome to Show Me The Meaning Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show Me The Meaning! My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me The Meaning crew. We got Greg. What's up? What's up? And Austin. Yo. All right. So guys, today we're breaking down the 2018 movie Sorry to Bother You written and directed by Boots Riley starring Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. As always, we're going to go ahead and go around and get some first impressions, but this time, not only what did you think of the movie, but I also want to hear what was the worst job you ever had. Worst, lowest paying job, most humiliating, degrading job you've ever had. Let's start with Greg.
1: Oh shit. <laughs> you hit me hard with that one. Yeah. Um, look, uh sorry to bother you. Sorry to bother me. Um <laughs> when I first saw the the trailer for this, I was so stoked, man. I used to live in Oakland, uh, the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco for like ten years. I saw, like, Streets that I lived on in the trailer. Um, and I was so excited for Boots Riley. I'm a huge fan of Lakeith Stansfield and, T- and Tessa Thompson. Uh, when I finally got to watch the movie, the beginning was so slow. Uh, it scared me. I was like, oh, shit, please don't let this be a bust. Please don't <laughs> let this be a buzz. And then it picked up. Picked up. It was great. Uh, I really dug the the artistry of the movie. I like the mm. colors. Yeah. I like the typography. I like the art. Uh, I like the craziness of the movie, the sound effects. It was beautiful. Um, you know, some parts were a little overboard. Uh, I, I I just dug a lot of elements of the movie. I I, I dug the the racial element of it, uh, the economy with the whole slaves and and shit. That whole the homeless thing. You know, they talked about so many things with gentrification and people not can't finding work and they just ended up doing this. What was the name of the program? Worry-free? Uh, worry-free type shit and I could really see something like that happening uh in the near future. Uh the horses at the end <laughs> <laughs> fucking blew me away. Um I dug the movie. I love Tessa Thompson's character probably the most. It was great. Uh, I'm happy for Boots Riley. I'm glad it was a hit for him. I um I'm excited to see what he does in the future. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I dug the movie. I, th- I did think some parts of it. You can tell he was a new director, and this was new to him. But all in all, I think it was a good movie.
0: And yeah. the worst job oh, you ever had. worst job I've ever had.
1: <laughs> oh, man, I've had a lot of shitty jobs, guys. Uh, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. I've had a lot of shitty jobs. Um, worst job I've probably had. Okay, I'll talk about this one. This was when I was in L.A., um, right after I worked at this job where I worked with kids and I was, like, done working with kids. I was like, fuck it. And I got this job uh, bussing tables at this, like, five-star restaurant at the LACMA called and Starks Bar. And I turned it into, like, a coffee server. I eventually became a bartender there, but the job was just... I was basically, like, selling my soul for rich people. It was horrible. I mean, the richest, snobbiest, bougiest douchebags of L.A. (laughs) were coming to this place, and I had to serve them and talk to them. It was the worst, man. Isn't
0: this when you were selling, like, $10 bottles of water?
1: Yes. Water. People, you hear me? the world ten dollar bottles of water
0: if i'm not mistaken there was a menu of water yeah
1: we had a water sommelier people uh, was, <laughs> jesus. we had diff- yes jesus it was the worst place ever it was soulless and uh yeah that's the worst job i've ever had sorry
0: for being so long-winded
2: oh no no not at all all right austin what'd you think of this movie i mean i'm always long-winded greg so please take the air out of my sail um i i've I'll be honest, I feel totally ill-equipped to talk about this film after one viewing. Um, it's one of those films that, to me, just has layers. And mm-hmm. yeah. I want to like sit there as a nerdy academic and break down those layers and think through them. I think, I think it's theoretically extremely dense and e- extremely accurate in its depiction of political economy. I think that it is art- – like like Greg said, I think it's artistically super fascinating. The first thing that caught my attention was uh, when Lakeith Stanfield is in the job interview and he gets the job and the camera pans out of the office and the office has a yellow light and the outside has a blue light. And it made me think of all those movie posters that use like yellow and blue because those yeah. – that contrast is supposed to be super appealing to the human brain. And then all of a sudden the the, the screen comes – or the the text comes up and says, sorry to bother you, but it's red. And then it uh, the, the background image dissolves into Tessa Thompson's hair and her hair is yeah. red. And I was like, just the way that he weaved the colors together, it was so – there was such a funky kind of surrealist element just from a visually aesthetic perspective that stayed throughout the entire film that I thought was fucking amazing. Um I don't know. I mean, we we throw around terms like Jesus and like genius and masterpiece and brilliant so often that I feel like it's betraying it to say it about this film. But I really do think that this is a brilliant piece of art. And uh, I just found it so fascinating. And I because I know me and Alec were hyping it, it. you know,
0: me and Alec were hyping it hardcore to you knowing that you study political economy. And I was like, Austin, this is basically political economy, the movie. So we didn't overhype it. It didn't. We didn't ruin it for you with too much expectations
2: i mean and you guys and then all of you know twitter and left twitter and like i follow boots riley and i've actually engaged with him about trying to get it out here in australia because it didn't have australian oh, distribution dope. finally it does now um and i'm going to another actual screening in a in a couple of weeks called like a solidarity screening That's like a bunch of lefties out here that are gonna go and watch this film together and so it's it's finally got distribution so i was hyped to see this fucking movie and to be honest It's still – it's so hard to live up to those expectations, right? We've talked about that before but it actually exceeded it because I kind of sat there after I watched it and I was like I just want to like ponder and let this wash over me rather than go on to the next thing to consume, whether it's a bottle of $10 water or whether it's like (laughs) you know, looking through YouTube and reading comments uh, on the film or like reading articles on the film. I wanted to just kind of sit with it for a little bit. Um, I thought it was fucking brilliant. I really I really do think so. And and I actually agree with Greg. I think you can see some elements where I'm kind of like, okay, where how is Boots going to grow as a filmmaker? You can see some elements that I felt were a little bit choppy. But literally every single one of those elements to me doesn't even matter because it was so bold and so well crafted uh, as a total piece that I am kind of – anything that for a second I was kind of like, Ugh, like that kind of – just like cut me out of my suspension of disbelief, uh, it's forgiven and I can pass over it all. So, um, and the worst and job worst I ever job had worst job ever I was a telemarketer in downtown. Oh wow! With uh, with a bunch of black dudes from Crenshaw, and my boss's name was Flip, and he sounded like <laughs> he kind of had like a really like raspy, gravelly voice, and he put on a white voice on the phones and so did everybody else in the office and uh i remember we used to experiment with different voices and shit like that to see what our response was and i used to do like australian accents and shit like that just to see how the uh people on the other end would respond to like a foreign person calling them or if you know like my buddy robert would he was from crenshaw and so it was like if he would talk just in his normal cadence would he get a different response than if he put on the white voice and it it was interesting to see the difference.
0: Wow, I had no idea this film would be that relevant
2: to you. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm not gonna lie. Like, it was fucking crazy, man. <laughs> it was yeah. crazy. Uh,
0: That's awesome. Did you have to say sorry to bother you as the first thing?
2: I don't remember the script. We were selling okay. cell phones, and okay, I don't remember the script exactly, but I, I don't think we said sorry to bother you because I think Austin, wait. Yeah, I think we didn't want to apologize because that? that made it seem like we were doing something that we weren't supposed to be doing. And you don't want to introduce negativity into a phone call.
1: What year? What year were you uh, telemarketing?
2: That must have been 2003, 2004, right at the okay. corner of Wilshire and Crenshaw. At There's like oh, a man. big like consulate <laughs> building there. It's actually right down the street from Lackama. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's that big white building that's right there at the corner of Wilshire and Crenshaw.
1: I know that fa- I know that pain. I used to do that in like 1999.
0: Oh, you did telemarketing too. I
1: used to work for MCI WorldCom, and I was a beast on those phones, man. I was I was getting money.
0: <laughs> did you put on a white voice?
1: Did I put? I didn't put on a white voice. I put on like a speedy, like a speed voice. Hey, how you doing? This is Greg Edwards calling from the MCI WorldCom. Oh I'm just here God. to give you a <laughs> let you know that you're paying about 3.95 an hour, 3.95 a phone call to call anywhere out of the. I guess I did put on like a. <laughs> A oh, whitish. <laughs> it is
0: a little bit. It is a little
1: bit. white speedy voice. But yeah, I made some money, man.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, God. All right, we actually got uh, Ryan uh, sent us a voicemail. So guys, if you got, if you guys want to send us a voicemail with your thoughts on anything that we do, two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. So let's go ahead and hear what Ryan thinks of this movie.
3: What up, Wisecrack? It's Ryan, your host, and I'm not here at the. Uh, hold on. What up, Wisecrack? It's your up boy up. and host, Ryan, <laughs> here with my review. I'm sorry to... <laughs> what up, Wisecrack? It's Ryan, it's your boy. Here. I couldn't make it to the podcast today, but I still wanted to give my uh, thoughts. I'm sorry to bother you. So I was so freaking pumped up when I saw this trailer. It looked like just my kind of movie, just a freaking party movie with weird transgressive stuff in it. And the whole, uh, the whole guy uses white voice on the phone... Uh, you know, as David Cross's voice just looks freaking awesome and like a really cool social commentary. Then I saw the freaking movie and I really, really didn't like it.
1: Mm. And
3: it pains me to say that because, you know, this is, it's the one movie of the year with giant mutant horse penises in it. And you would think <laughs> I would like that movie. I really wanted to. I tried so hard. But my main critique is that I feel like this movie just has virtually nothing to say other than the, the guy uses white voice as a telemarketer part. Which happens very early in the film too. By the way, Um, it's basically just to me. It's like a college kid that just says capitalism sucks, rich people are evil, and you know underdogs are good. That's basically all the movie is saying to me. There's they try to kind of wrap it up in this crazy class, you know, all this class imagery. But to me, it's all very hollow, very very shallow, very superficial, surface level stuff that you could just basically find any. I don't know. Hot topic T-shirt is kind of my opinion of this movie. And then the whole, uh, like I said, the whole uh, a guy uses white voice on the uh, on the uh, uses his white voice on the on the telephone uh, to make money. That was used to far better effect in Black Klansmen, my favorite movie of the year. Even though he doesn't make money in it, it uh, it's still the, the point still made. Uh, made the point still stands. goddammit. it! And it's a way better movie <laughs> that actually has something to say. Even though I don't even agree with Spike Lee half the time. But I still like it way more than freaking Boots Riley's shitty and, like, amateurish freshman year film school. Sorry to bother you.
0: All right. Nice. Well, we definitely got a diversity of opinion Damn, there. I like
1: that, he That was a hot take.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like this movie. I think that the critique is interesting. The overall message of the film is interesting. I don't think it's perfect. I mean, there are some elements there that I definitely agree with Ryan on. But, uh, you know, it's interesting when Greg said that the beginning was slow, I don't feel like I felt that way the first time I watched it because I was really into the characters. I mean, I'm with Greg. I'm a big Lakeith Stanfield fan. Uh, But when I was doing the recap for these, I I learned a lot about a movie just trying to summarize it for this podcast. But I realized that, yeah, I mean, the first hour of the movie, not a lot happens. I, I found myself not even writing down a lot of the things that happened in the first hour of the movie. So I definitely feel that. And then by the end of the movie... Of course, with the horses, any movie that has practical effect horse people that is somehow brought into a kind of political economic critique is just awesome in my book. So I dug it. I thought it took a lot of risks. I was entertained the whole time. And, yeah, I dug it. I like this movie a lot. All right, guys. So uh, once again, if you guys want to leave us a voicemail, it's 213-534-8807. You guys got good jokes, good insights, whatever you want. Uh, but anyway, let's go into a recap of this movie. So Cassius Green is four months behind paying rent to live in his uncle's garage with his girlfriend Detroit. In order to make sure the bank doesn't foreclose on the house, he gets a low-paying job at a telemarketing company where he meets Squeeze, who is trying to organize the workers to demand more. Once a coworker gives him the tip to use his white voice, Cassius gets promoted to a power caller, which he soon finds out sells slave labor for a company called Worry Free. Now that he's getting paid, he's able to save his uncle's house and move into a better place, but he has to turn his back on Squeeze's union efforts. Frustrated with Cassius's lack of solidarity with his friends fighting the telemarketing company, Detroit has to break up with him. Cassius continues to rake in so much money for the company that he gets invited to the CEO of Worry Free's party while Denver hooks up with Squeeze after her art show. During the party, Cassius meets with the Worry-Free CEO, does coke with him, and accidentally stumbles upon Worry-Free's newest experiment, half-human, half-horse hybrids, that will exponentially increase labor efficiency and profitability at Worry-Free. Thing is, men are turned into horses with something that looks a lot like the coke Cassius just snorted. The CEO pitches him on being an undercover rebel in the emerging human horse society to control and temper any revolt. Cassius gets on television's most sensational show to leak that Worry Free is making horse-human hybrids, but instead of inciting outrage, Worry Free's stocks surge. Cassius reconciles with Squeeze and joins the picketers in stopping people from entering the doors of the telemarketing company. The cavalry comes to crush the protesters, but they are saved by the horse people who vow to fight the same fight together. Cassius and co... (laughs) <laughs> go back to work at the telemarketing company, but this time as a functioning union. Cassius gets back with Detroit, moves back into his uncle's garage, and grows horse nostrils. <laughs> and then as a horseman, he shows up at the CEO of Worry Free's house to take him down. End of movie. All right, guys, so first I just want to get through the message of this film, basically, and then we'll start breaking down the specifics. But I think basically the message of this film is that Capitalism sucks. Workers without capital will be exploited to optimize profits to such an extent that they will strip you of your humanity to achieve these profits. This is literalized by the horse people hybrids. But ultimately, if we stick together and don't scab, we can take small steps to a more equitable society. All right, guys, so let's head back to the show. So the first thing I want to talk about is Worry-Free. What, do you, what, what is Worry-Free? It's the cheapest labor in the world. It says, Worry-Free is a brand new business and lifestyle model that's taken the world by storm. When you sign a Worry-Free <laughs> contract, you're guaranteed employment and housing for life. Stop worrying. Get Worry-Free. What would you guys say is the what, – what is the corollary to real life here of Worry-Free? What, what is this criticizing? How does this reflect the workplace today?
1: I feel like, uh, well, I feel like worry-free is probably, like, the future's uh, solution to homeless homelessness. I can see, like, you know, L.A. has a huge homeless problem. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, New York does as well. Uh, it was just on Twitter today, like, one in ten kids in New York are homeless. Uh, San Francisco has a huge homeless problem. So I can see some dude coming around like, hey— I got this idea, we get everybody off the streets, we put them in this factory, we make them work, we don't give them much money, but they get to eat, they get shelter, they get clothing, blah, 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 blah. I see that coming in the future. And I also look at like these app jobs as a little bit like worry-free. It's like something that you can pay your rent. These app jobs. Oh, like, app. You know, driving and lift.
0: Or like uh, wag or the dog uh, one.
1: Yeah, all of that. Uh, the, the bird thing, mm-hmm. those guys that if you charge up the birds... The scooters overnight, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, all those, all those app jobs that don't give you any benefits, uh, no health care, they just pay your bills slowly, but they're not giving you much money at all. No stock, <laughs> none of that shit. Are I, I look at it as equivalents to like uh, things like that? Worry free, mm. a small thing, but I can see it happening bigger in the future.
0: Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Austin? I, I had a hard time placing an exact one to one metaphor here.
2: I mean, first of all, I. I don't even know that we're supposed to. I think that what's more important are that there are, like, thematic or conceptual resonances, right, that make sense okay. rather than, oh, this represents this and this represents that. And I think that was one of the things I actually really liked about this film is I didn't find it as being – you know, there's a big debate in, like, art theory about representational art versus, like, expressional art – and I'm not sure that this film is best looked as being purely representational in that like the horses represent this type of person and Worry-Free represents this like Walmart or something like that or this uh, sector of the economy. But two things did pop into my mind with regards to worry three, not just what Greg's talking about, which is a possibility of like how capitalism would ultimately benefit best from – Free labor that it can extract from, and you know this is something that Detroit talks about when she says that about when she's talking about Africa, how capitalism was grounded in the free exploitation of slave labor from Africans, um, which is a fact. Like capitalism, American capitalism was built, not just American capitalism, Western capitalism was built on the backs of free slave labor, uh, and so and Boots Riley actually has talked about this on Twitter, and he's you know he's a very vocal political. Uh, speaker on things so he has talked about this obviously if you see the film he is um but (laughs) but even beyond that I thought about like kind of like two kind of contemporary examples that that really kind of resonated with me whenever those commercials popped up uh one was something that's called like affective labor or immaterial labor um, but it's the idea that, you know, when we're on social media, every tweet that we send and every social media post that we like or comment or share or whatever, we're producing value for these platforms that we are not getting compensated for in the traditional sense. Now, we might get some sort of dopamine rush that we presume is some sort of return on human capital, but that is essentially an exploitative relationship because Mark Zuckerberg, or Jeff Bezos who's every time we're on Amazon every time we click even if we don't buy something when we do buy something that's great but even if we don't buy something we're still expanding the value because of the immaterial and affective labor the emotional labor that we're imbuing into the value of these platforms that then become larger and larger and larger and they exert greater and greater demand and control over the marketplace and over our own intersubjective relations how it is that we can relate to each other how it is that we understand economy how it is that we engage in trade because it's all getting taken and over by these platforms as the mediators of that entire experience. And so the more that we imbue value into them as free laborers that aren't getting a proper return on the value that we're actually creating in the system itself, then the more you get this kind of extractive system. So that was something that kind of popped out to me. And then but how, does, ma- how does that con- how What's does that up?
0: connect to how does that connect to lifetime labor contracts and free housing and really shitty compact working conditions and stuff like that?
2: Um, I mean I guess the idea of like uh, like free housing and comfort is the idea that you're getting some sort of palliative that's making you feel better you're getting this promise of community okay. and so, uh, this this promise of society you know you have friends how many friends do you have is it official? Are you Facebook official yet and it's not real <laughs> you know you're not right. really you don't really exist if you're not on Facebook or whatever and it's this promise that somehow social media or that these platforms, are producing some sort of social value. I mean we are social beings, we need social connection and social media uh, has has taken a very large role in our society as kind of offering the promise of being the conduit for social value. So I think that would be the idea is that you're getting happiness, you're getting joy, you're getting comfort, you're getting uh, community from these things. and. It literally is an investment. I mean Freud uses this word of cathexis which is this idea that you're emotionally investing into an object or into a loved one, right? So when that loved person or when that loved object disappears, dies, whatever, that's part of the reason why you experience heartbreak is because literally a part of you is taken away. Well, same thing with these these platforms is we are literally imbuing our emotional selves into them not just as individuals, but as collectives and communities, which means then that they have like this great. There, there's a contract that they have over our emotional and affective beings themselves, because they are kind of become an extension of ourselves, an extension of our conscious experience. If that makes okay, sense. what's the second one? And then, and then the other one, and, and I can't, I can't not talk about it because I, I couldn't help but think about it. But it's our prison system, the prison system that literally uses black bodies, minority bodies as free laborers or cheap laborers to mm. produce products. Um, you know, I mean, as much as as crazy as the whole Kanye debacle has been and, and shit like that, I don't even want to get into it. But one of the things that he did mention with this idea of like abolishing the 13th Amendment, which is just fucking ridiculous. Sure. But the, the thing that I think he thinks he was trying to get at, which he didn't articulate well, is based kind of on like that documentary 13th. Which is the idea that there's a loophole in the Constitution that says, yeah, slavery is going to be illegal except if somebody is incarcerated. And the United States has really benefited from very cheap labor, if not relatively free labor, based on individuals who are incarcerated. And I was thinking something similar about that with regards to um, the whole kind of uh, Army Hammer's whole business model.
0: There's a part in the movie that I think speaks to what Greg was talking about, with the homeless situation, as well as what you were just talking about, with the black community. There's an ad – on a billboard and it shows a black guy on a couch with like a blunt and a 40 that says show the world you're a responsible baby daddy. Join worry free. Just shameless promoting to the black community to like lower income black community. Mm -hmm. You know, the funny thing is I've heard people say that worry free is supposed to be like corporate wage labor. Just this idea that, okay, you know, you get like a safe job at like a Walmart Or some sort of rat race kind of safe job. But the thing about... And, I, I, you know, Austin, after hearing you say that you don't think there's a real one-to-one corollary, maybe I was focusing a little bit too heavily on trying to find that. Because I'm starting to like it more now that I'm liberating myself from the need for that. Mm. Because I always found it to be a weak point in the overall message of the movie because... This whole idea of a lifetime labor contract, that's what screams slavery, (laughs) but there's no such thing as that. I actually asked uh, Kevin, who has he guest-hosted the uh, Spirited Away podcast, and he's an ex-lawyer. I actually asked him, I was like, are lifetime labor contracts a thing? And he said, I don't think so, or if they are, they're not done often, but then he looked it up and he said that there actually is a case where in in or in idaho or something like that where there was such a thing but even then if you walk out of the job the worst they can do is sue you they can't keep you there against their will physically right right yeah who
1: signs that contract
0: (laughs) someone very desperate i guess
2: i mean i i wouldn't be surprised if there isn't some sort of because there's a constant critique about slave labor and wage labor throughout the entire film. And that is a central component of a lot of anti-capitalists inspired by Marx uh, critiques of capitalism, right? That that a, a wage is a slave wage. That's a term that's used all the time. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is sort of um, like a, a rhetorical intensification of that as well, um, that it could be that's like, oh, even your you know, 40 hours a week at minimum wage at Walmart is basically equivalent to this. And as, you know, more a greater sector of the economy or of the workforce are working these types of jobs, then it kind of this is what it's like. Like this is a a rhetorical, conceptual or thematic representation of that. That could be. But yeah, I guess I'm
0: just saying if you're criticizing capitalism, it's it's a you're making the case not very good on your end. If the this. The company that you're creating to represent the evils of capitalism has people sign lifetime labor contracts because nobody does that. And that's also – I mean that's a significant
2: distinction. Unless he's saying that if you exist under the conditions of capitalism, you essentially are signing a lifetime labor contract because you can't not work outside of the capitalist system and therefore – when you go into the labor market, when you are born in the United States, when you're born in the UK, when you're born in France or uh, Australia, you are signing a social contract with a socioeconomic system that is a lifetime contract that you can't not abide by. Because if you don't work, then you starve. So there is an element of that that could be there as well. Um, and, and I think that that's that that's why i think it's probably better to not view this as like a one to one representation but yeah, yeah, yeah. more of like a thematic conceptual resonance
1: but the movie's the movie is very prevalent to the bay area it's very yeah. uh, cuz if you see what's going on in the bay right now it's it's so expensive to live there like right. uh, you you need a job and like one of those 40 hour shitty telemarketer jobs is just going to keep you on that wheel you know, of just hustling. His car had those numbers on it. Those numbers on the car mean your car got towed, <laughs> and it it got taken taken to like a, a shop that you had to pay to get out of. It's it's the the barrier has this rat race, especially for broke people. Not even broke people. Like just people that are like college kids or like artists. If you're there, you are struggling like shit. So yeah. I can see. One of those I could see a factory like that helping people out in the bay. I could see somebody like, hey, you might have been low you might have been done for rent for like four months. You don't have any bread. You got this girlfriend, you're trying to keep up with everybody else. And I could see somebody looking at that commercial like, Oh man, this could you know, I could I can see myself doing this and, yeah. and looking at it as a good thing, you know what I mean? Right. The the well, barrier is yeah. really horrible right now with its uh, this, the the wealth disparity right now. I mean, it's, it's people that, that are making so much tech money and people that are just yeah. at the bottom of the barrel. And
0: more to, more to Austin's point, like these tech people who are not only making a shit ton of money, but also making it harder for other people to live, they're not creating fucking shit value. Yeah. You know, like, ugh, whatever. Right. I'm such well, a
2: technophobe. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, if we take everything that we've said so far into consideration and then... We think about what what's so interesting about this film at an individual level is the individual pressures that Lakeith Stanford I forget what's his fucking character's name again? Cassius. Cash. Cash, Cash. Oh fuck, green. how do I forget Cassius? Duh, he constantly says it when he's on the phone. Cash. Um what the individual pressures that we see that I found it was so interesting. Now I can't really speak obviously to the black experience, so I'm just merely parroting things that I've heard other voices that I that I have read speak about, right? But the pressure to kind of Look at that, like Greg was just saying and saying, fuck man, I've got to pay my bills. Uh, My uncle's going to lose his house. Uh, My girl's going to leave me. Uh, I've got to be a good baby daddy, whatever it is that the pressures from the outside system are kind of imposing upon you. And you've got to be like, I need to go and do something so that I can somehow overcome the limits and the restraints of these material conditions. And you see that he – that's what I thought the first hour of the film, that's why I thought it was so interesting. Because for me, it was all about that, like looking at how is he going to navigate the unionization at his work with the pressures of being a black man in America that also are like, hey, go get your money. And he's got to go get his money. And is that a bad thing that he's going and getting his money, even if it's to the detriment of this like unionization, if he becomes a scab? And then there's that interesting, the racial and individual pressures that sort of have tension with the collective class pressures. And I thought that that buildup was so interesting in light of the other larger socioeconomic system that we've kind of already hinted at. And that was, I thought, super fucking fascinating as it unfolded, because it's like, yeah, you got to go and do what you got to do so that you can fucking eat, you know?
0: And that's another thing. One of my criticisms of this movie is that, I guess maybe I'm a little bit cynical, but I just think that any of those other characters, any of his friends, if they were in the same position as Lakeith and they got that that power caller uh come up they would take it yeah you know what i'm saying like that I, I just don't buy it that he really made this horrible mistake and he really was being morally bankrupt while everyone else was a saint i, I just don't buy it well that's, um, i think
1: that's one of the the best parts of you know just boots rally is just showing that that uh that crab barrel crap kind of mentality of like you you're getting out and everybody else is trying to pull you back in, even mm. though you're getting out on some fraudulent shit. It's, it reminded me of, like, the Kaepernick thing. You know, like, uh, Colin Kaepernick is kneeling, and he's he's not getting paid, and all these other guys, all these other brothers in the NFL, some of them are kneeling, and some of them aren't. Some of them are like, yo, guys, fuck this. I finally got out of the hood. I'm getting yeah, my money. I'm not, you know I'm not what doing I mean? <laughs> anything that's going to
0: fuck with this money. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And so it's the same thing. It's like... Look, we should be all together on this, and then, and, you know, some guys are like, "Nah, man, I'm getting my money." I hear you, I hear what you're saying, <laughs> right? I feel what you're saying, but no, I'm getting my twenty million dollars this year. You know, like, <laughs> and, I, and I understand. I'm going it's, full it's,
2: it's, to get my hundred million. It's, yeah, it's a rough place to be. In. <laughs> I totally yeah. understand.
0: All right, we got a, I got a ton to get through, so I want to uh, head to the next topic. I want to talk about the telemarketing company now. The first thing I want to talk about is one of my favorite characters in the whole movie, Diana Debauchery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kate It looks like Debauchery. It looks like Debauchery. (laughs) Uh, So there is – so there's one line that she says that I really want to hear Austin's thoughts on. And there's some interesting things about here. So let me just read what she says. She says, I'm your new team leader, and I know you're going to look at me and say, is she a manager? I'm scared. Is she going to treat me like a series of motorized appendages? No. That stops now. You're not employees to me. You are team members. We're a family. You know what that means? I lean on you. You lean on me. There's a synergy. You can feel that energy. I know you can. And the funny thing is when she's saying, can you feel that energy? I know you can. She's like doing this like awkward white girl dance move kind of thing. And so this is so Rebecca just wrote a script for this video that came out two weeks ago on escaping the system. And she talked about two theorists named Boltansky and Ciapello and how they talk about how modern management culture is kind of all about giving you the freedom of creativity. When in reality, you're doing still doing the same job. It's really just a way to s- squash rebellion. It's like we get this nice lady up there. She says that you're family, but really all these things that, She said that you that you should not be scared of, like treating me like a series of motorized appendages. She's still treating you exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I thought that was really cool. And this next quote, I think, is really interesting. And I'm sure Austin's going to have a lot to say about it. Hmm. So, look, you you already know what I'm going to bring up, don't you? Is it a
2: bit about when she talks about capital? It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she's so Lakeith after that whole spiel, Lakeith is just like, does that mean we get paid more? And then she's like, no,
2: capital means something different nowadays. She says, no, but what is capital? I would argue
0: that social currency is more important and don't take it from me. Take it from the news. Take it from the media. All kinds of media. Media is changing. So is capital. So before you go, Austin, I want to let you. This is what it means to me. And I really like this part because I really hate the idea of how of social capital, because I hate the idea of elevating people socially based on their race gender identity or creed because I think it's just a way of maintaining the status quo while giving them empty charity Mm. and I think that that's kind of what this character is pointing to but I want to hear your thoughts on that because it's not often in a movie that they even bring up the idea of capital versus cultural capital in the dialogue.
2: Fucking I literally almost jumped out of my seat so I was like hallelujah (laughs) like it wasn't this movie was so not subtle that I was like but it wasn't it didn't feel pedantic at the same time, you know? Like I agree. I, I could feel like someone could watch it and they'd be like, oh, it's a little heavy-handed. But for someone like me that just is nerds out on this shit, I did not feel like he was preaching to me. But at the same time, I was like, oh, he's not pulling any fucking punches. How did Annapurna ever pick this up and decide that they were going to make this and that it got accepted in America? Like, this is, a, this is not an American film in so many ways, you know? Like, I could imagine this coming out in, like, France or Poland or something like that, but... America? I was like, holy shit. Um, that, that's interesting to mention like Luke Boltonsky because uh, he wrote a book called, I think it's called The Spirit of Capitalism or something like that. Um, I read it when I was doing my master's degree years ago and... Um, yeah, one of the things that the first part of that quote that, that it's, makes me think about, and I know I've mentioned him a few times on this podcast now, but it's the philosopher named Byung-Chul Han who talks about how under like the conditions of late capitalism, which we would say kind of take place under the conditions of neoliberalism or postmodern neoliberalism after the 1970s thereabouts uh, until the present, or sometimes people will cite it maybe after World War II somewhere around there, but let's just say from the 70s in particular afterwards. Um, that, uh, that there's been like a, a shift away from negativity and that it's all just about like positive reinforcement and that instead of you being a subject that actually struggles and like you, you don't want to go to work but you do it because it's duty or because you're doing the right thing or whatever. But no, you constantly need to be told that actually this is what you want to do, you know, you want to to be free in selling your labor to somebody else so that you can go buy a nice car or so that you can accumulate different forms of capital. and So it's about a shift if you will in how it is that we emotionally and affectively view our relationship to our system of wage exploitation is how the criticism would go. And for Byung-Chul Han, he says that we're all achievement subjects and we're living in this era of just pure positivity. So there's no negativity. There's there's none of that like struggle. It's just pure, no, man, like this is what you want to do. You know, I'm not your boss. I'm your friend. We're a team. We're a community. And so it's substituting those human needs and desires for connection and transfusing them into, or transposing them, I should say, into a system that is essentially contrary to that, but while manipulating us, thinking that we are actually manifesting those desires. And that's what I think is so interesting about debauchery. What what does she say? How does she pronounce it? Debauchery? Debauchery. Debauchery. Yeah, that's like the essence of the first part of her speech. And then the second part I just find so fascinating because – I mean there's a lot of confusion I think about what capital actually means but uh, like an oversimplified I think definition is that capital is a socially produced asset that then is able to be reinvested into an economic system to produce profits. So like I've got cash in my wallet. That's not capital. Um, But if you own machinery, that could be a form of capital. So because I I can't reinvest that – dollars into the economic system to produce a profit, but I can take machinery that maybe makes pencils or whatever, and I can invest that into the economic system to create a profit. So there has to be but some wait, sort what, of what, what asset if you had that you can reinvest, that, right? If you had a million dollars, would that be capital? It could be. It isn't necessarily, but if you're turning it into an asset that you're going to invest into a startup company, for example, then you would call it capital. So it's only capital under the conditions that it's reproducible and investable into the socioeconomic system, I would say. Again, this is debatable. This is where it gets a little sticky. But the reason I think that this definition is maybe one of the better ways of thinking about it is because then it makes us understand how it is that these other forms of quote-unquote capital make sense. So social capital is a certain type of social meaning or social value that you've accumulated that you can then invest, that you've accumulated on Instagram because of other people liking and subscribing and sharing and commenting on your videos and telling other people you got to follow Jared and Woody uh, on their Instagram. So you've accumulated a certain amount of assets that you then can invest as, you know, you are building your Woody brand or whatever it is that you're building. So... It's a socially produced asset that has to be reinvestable. So a million dollars could be capital, but it's not necessarily capital. Like if it's just sitting in a fucking treasure chest, it's not capital.
0: If so but sense. would you agree with me that she brings this up? She brings the idea that capital is changing just to basically say like, oh, you don't need money. There's other stuff that's meaningful in right.
2: life. Which is really insidious. Yeah. It's like, oh, don't right. worry. You don't need a better wage. As long as you get more followers on Instagram, you're happy because that's the capital that you need. So in, in economic in, terms, in they refer studies, to this as human capital. Cap- and human right, capital in- is the idea that uh, – it comes out of the Chicago school. And uh, the idea of human capital is this idea of um, – you, know, you basically build your own capacities through education and through building skill sets and maybe today through having a social media following – and you can use those things to invest back into the economy to get a proper return on your investment. But the problem is is what type of return on investment are you getting? Are you getting money so that you can eat and have electricity over your head? No, you're just getting likes so that you can make yourself feel better by getting dopamine rushes. And So the question is, is that an adequate substitute for uh, the investment that you are imbuing with your emotional and affective labor?
0: Uh, all right. Let's talk about the guy with the eye patch. Why do you guys think the guy with the eye patch has his name bleeped out? Whenever he says his name, it's so interesting, out.
2: right? There were a lot of little subtle things that they don't linger over, yeah. and I'm like, Ooh, like that's why I said I want to watch this again. <laughs> Greg, what do you think? I have no
1: idea. <laughs> uh, it just made me, yeah, it made me think about uh, Basquiat for some reason. You know, how he crosses out words so people can, uh, look into the word more you mm-hmm. know it's almost like uh he bleeps out his name so you just want to know his name more you know what i mean i i don't know but mm-hmm. I, so
0: for me and then this kind of goes into the the next subject i want to talk about which is race in this movie but to me it's there's like this stages it's like first you get the white voice then you don't even know when you're talking in the white voice and when you're talking regularly and then at last it almost like obliterates your identity because i think the guy in the eye patch is so deep in this system that colonizes blackness, and we'll get into that in
2: a little bit, that it's like killed his identity entirely
0: Mm -hmm. is kind of how I read it.
2: Yeah, I really like that. I mean, two things. I think first I thought it was fucking hilarious how he's like, don't call me bleep, call me bleep. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) even his casual name or the name that he corrected, Cash, Cash with is the name that gets bleeped out. So it's. I thought it was going to be like, don't call me bleep, call me, like that was my expectation in that instant. And then he was going to actually say the name, but it got bleeped up too. And I think you're right. I think there's something about losing your identity because this idea of embodying uh, the white voice, it's more, and and I'm sure we'll get into this more in the the next question you want to talk about race, but this film is more than just like some sort of, it's not a tale about like a psychological hat that you put on that is distinct from your identity. It is about that. It is, you know, I think we've talked about it in, in videos in the past, but the idea of double consciousness. It's this idea that uh, that, that black Americans, I think it's W. B. E. Du Bois that talks about double consciousness. Um, is this like extra identity that you have to wear alongside your black identity. You have to also have a different social identity, a different consciousness that you're aware of that is uh, that creates this duality in your purpose um, or in your identity. And it's a difficult field to navigate. All right. Yeah, we got
0: only a little bit of time left, but there's a bunch of other stuff I want to get through. So first, let's talk about race. Let's talk about the white voice. So I'm going to read uh, Danny Glover's awesome monologue (laughs) about the white voice. He says, not Will Smith white. That's just proper. It's sounding like you don't have a care. You got your bills paid. You're happy about your future. You're about ready to jump into your Ferrari out there after you get off to this get off this call. Make it breezy. Like, I don't really need this money. You've never been fired, only laid off. It's like a white voice is what they wish they sounded like. Mm. It's like what they think they're supposed to sound like. Mm. What do you guys think they mean by that? Is it... It's So it's not that they're just trying to sound like white people. It's, I think, more like what Austin is saying is that we're all playing a role. <clears throat> is it that... Yeah, is it that they're actually emulating white people or is it this emulating this like white idea of just being all good and okay
1: i think it's just uh the freedom in a voice mm-hmm. you know like um like like danny said it was so beautiful too the way danny, dan i love danny glover mm-hmm. uh it's just you know like he said having the money look, look, I don't need this job, man. I'm just doing this to be here. Uh, I'm about to hop in my car and breeze down to 101. Um, I think it's the freedom. Yeah. I think it was just the freedom of the voice. Uh, you know, I mean, it's white, too, though. I mean, like, we yeah. all know that guy. Yeah. You know, I know that guy in Manhattan Beach that, you know, he comes from, like, big money. He doesn't need to do anything. He just surfs, you know. I think mm. we all know that dude. And they're trying to, imitate that guy, to uh, to get other people that want to be that guy, or, or not necessarily want to be that guy, but just want to feel that energy, eh, I think that's mostly what they're mm-hmm. talking about. You know, yeah.
0: another thing that's interesting about the white voice is that he still uses black slang in the white voice. So he says yeah. things in the white voice like, yeah, we're just going to chop it up. And uh, he says, you know, oh, if you uh, just holler at your boy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and. And so there's, like, still this blackness present in the white voice, but it's, like, it's safe blackness. Yeah, but
1: those, those white dudes do that all the time, though. Those, like— Right. You know, yeah, yeah. But you're right. It's safe. It's hella safe. Yeah. yeah, I
2: mean, when I when I say homie, it's very different than uh, when Greg says homie. And if we're on the phone talking with someone, it's going to be received differently, right? Totally.
1: Or if we're just talking, you know? Right. And, and, and <laughs> just talking around people. Oh, right. It's it, so It's so crazy. I mean, we're like the the racial aspects of it uh, is really you know like uh, I got I got some like comedian buddies of mine. I got a buddy, this white dude, tatted up. I mean, like neck tats and everything. And I mean, he gets corporate jobs. You know, he puts this suit on, and I'm like, man, that- <laughs> I'm like, yo, you got neck tats, dog, and you put on a suit on, and you get this great job. Uh, but I'm like, man, if I had if I had anything on my neck that was that was fucking tattooed on it, it's so many places I wouldn't even be able to go into, and it's just you know that that element of uh of safety, even mm. when you can do some of the hoodies and the most uh you know culturally scary shit, uh, but you're still like you're still a white dude.
2: Mm.
0: Well, last thing on this subject is uh. Is Cash Cash's rap, which I think is really funny. It
1: was beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, more to what I was saying earlier about like me listening to Kevin Gates or whatever. It's like a lot of people think of rap as consuming and living vicariously through the Black experience. That's right. But some of them are just so. It's like as long as they're hearing obscenities, they feel like they're feeling the vitality of the black experience. Right. And I, I thought that part was hilarious.
1: Oh, it's, it's, it was so good.
0: Yeah. All right. Last thing I want to talk about is the media. So oh, we not going to talk about uh, the horse dicks? Oh, no. <laughs> we will. All right. We can make this one a little bit long. So l- let's talk
1: about this. No pun intended. Let's talk right.
0: about the smile bitch meme. So there's a video of him. That he gets hit with a Coke can. It gets millions of views. Then it becomes a Halloween costume worn by... <laughs> Seemingly everyone, and then the woman who threw the Coke can signs some kind of a deal and becomes super rich. I really like this because to me, this is how the media feeds into this idea of quelling revolutionary fervor. So even something that was meant to communicate dissatisfaction with the status quo gets swallowed up. And the meaning of Lakeith getting hit in the face with that can is neutered. Of all meaning, and even the woman who was at one point a rebel is now just part of the system getting her millions of dollars on the TV. It's uh,
2: great. Well, Well, here's a perfect example of how somebody can produce something and then figure out how to monetize it, right? Now, she does it in a way that she's kind of embedding herself within a system that is ultimately exploitative, that is, you know, that sort of subject of criticism in this film. But – Here's a way that it can happen. There's a way to figure out how to monetize anything under the conditions of late capitalism, and that is one of the central tensions that we see that's kind of being exploited. That anything can be turned into an opportunity to make a profit.
0: Okay, yeah. Let's talk about the horses. I mean, other than I, I mean, the meaning of the horses is pretty clearly stated by uh, Army Hammer's character. I love the design of them. I thought it was such a I mean
2: what, wow. what, what was your reaction well first of all, Austin did you know that was coming no fucking clue I have heard I had heard that something batshit happens right because the trailer doesn't give anything away and so great too. and then I've heard some people talking and then it's like right up to the get to the point where like oh when the when the something happens and then someone else like Shh, don't say anything and so I was like what the fuck happens does he go into like the underworld into hell or I was like what the? I was like I was waiting for something but I was not expecting horse dicks uh, what about sapiens? you
1: greg uh, i was totally shocked uh, <laughs> it made me i laughed so hard in the movie theater i just thought you know like uh for boots man that's a risk you know what i mean I said, oh, yeah. oh, that's a huge yeah. risk you know what i mean <laughs> to do that and the way they were the way they were moving is it was, it was kind of scary but like uh, and are they turning they're turning people into big dick horses wow take yeah. slavery to a whole nother level right um but yeah, I thought I thought it was great. And it just made me, at that point I saw it and I was like, oh, I can't wait to for his next movie. I can't wait for a, a new Boots.
2: Yeah. I mean, I know we're running long and it would be really easy for me to be super long-winded anyway. For real, if people want to talk about this more, email us, hit me up on Twitter. But there's a psychoanalytic element to this that I think is so important to understand that I actually think is the most fascinating point about this film. That's a different layer that we haven't talked about. But It's this idea of desire and sexuality and libidinal desire, which isn't just sex, but sometimes it's even pre-sexual, but it's like an investment, an erotic investment into the things that we engage in and how it is that uh, the socioeconomic system harnesses that and exploits that libidinal investment. And particularly black men have been sexualized for having big dicks, they're, they're beasts, they're animals, they're, you know, whatever. And I think that by... By literalizing that into the force of a stallion that has a big dick, which is obviously an animal that does have a big dick, there's some really interesting tensions that he's exploring here with regards to how it is that, one, that black men are sexualized – um, and then two, how that fits into an economic system that is all about libidinal and sexual desire, like that debauchery woman, like when she first puts cash into the elevator. I mean, she's so turned on by him in the suit, and she like almost can't oh, help yeah. herself. She's she's there's like an erotic experience um, that that even when uh, I can't remember there were other bits, but it's like Army Hammer is quite sexual in some of the things that he's kind of talking about. Um, that party is all about fucking, you know, it's about like doing cocaine and fucking. And he says that at one point, you know, when he tells him to calm down, he's like, get out there and go fuck something. And there's this idea of, uh, of like, desire and passion and libido and sexuality that's also mapped onto black bodies that have been highly sexualized that I thought was such an interesting touch that you see so literalized with the Echo Sapiens. And then, of course, there were horses, right? Like, what do you call a running back in the NFL? Like, I think they talk Stallion. about this in the movie Varsity Blues. You got the black running back that's like I'm just the head coach's workhorse. I don't get yep. the touchdowns, but I do every I do all the other work, but I don't get the actual reward for it. Same sort of thing. You know, that the black people have been the workhorse, the mule, the animal, the the body that we can use to exponentially increase our profit rate. Yeah. <clears <clears throat> 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 fucking fucking thing I thought. And they were fucking cool, man. Like, the prosthetics <laughs> were fucking cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. No no CGI.
0: Yeah. It, was no. it was practical. It was tight. Practical effects, Crazy. man.
2: They were so fucking well done, I thought, too. I, I fucking loved them. And the balls on boots to do
1: that. Like, mm-hmm. what movie has done that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just, just go there with it.
0: Yeah. Just, like, that much of a fucking left turn that late into the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, like, what did you think
2: <clears throat> when the guy was in the stall? Like, did you think it was, like, did you have, it?
0: like... No, I had no idea. I mean, yeah. it just sounded like a regular voice, and yeah. then I thought it was
1: kidnapping them or something, or like eat. I thought they were eating people. I thought they were like getting you know kidnapping people to eat them, but not. I'm so
0: it. I'm so glad that when the first shot they introduced the horse people, the dick is in the shot because they <laughs> just needed that extra shock, you know. <laughs> uh, before, but before we get into uh, the voicemails, one last thing: How do you guys take the ending of this movie? So the telemarketing company still exists. All they've really the only progress they really made is that it's slightly more equitable, I suppose, because now they have a union. Uh, Cash goes back to living with his uncle and then he becomes a horse. At first, when I left this movie, I thought it was a pretty negative ending because I thought like, oh, well, you know, you can't beat the man. The most you can hope for is just like slightly better. I I don't know. I didn't even really take it as as a better thing. And then when he becomes a horse, I didn't really know what to think. How I mean, how do you guys they do read beat the, the man, though, it, don't they?
2: They break into his fucking house and they get what's theirs, don't they? I mean, that's kind of how I kind of took it. Yeah, it's that, like
0: what it's it's teased out, but at the end of the day, he's still a fucking horse now. Yeah.
1: No, I, I love the ending of it. It just shows that uh you're not going to win this. You know, it just shows that uh the corporations, the man is still going to win. Oh yeah, you got your you got your union. You're going to make a little bit of money, but the country, the corporation uh, they're they're still gonna win this, and you know maybe you go to his house and you beat his ass with your horse buddies, but he's gonna heal up. <laughs> he's gonna heal up and still be driving that Tesla, still gonna be living in that big ass house, and you're a horse. You know, I think it was. I think that's another part of uh, Boots that's just not gonna uh, not gonna shy away and try to make it a happy ending.
2: Yeah. Do you think he's a pessimist? Like, is this a pessimistic ending? That's like no matter what, you're still just a black body, and black bodies are treated like sapiens in this world. And so, no matter what you do, no matter your efforts, you're still going to turn into an sapien because that's what the system will turn you into. So therefore the only thing you can do is have some sort of like revolt at the end.
1: I would say pessimist. I would I would just say, you know, realist. A realist. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. Right.
0: All right, let's go into the voicemails. So we got a couple Greg, let's go ahead and play the first one. Oh, let's do
1: it. All right. Uh, You want this one? The one with the dude? uh, Okay, (laughs) here we go.
3: They say life is meaningless because everything changes. But what if the meaning of life is change?
2: Uh, well, all I right love, i love that person who are you
0: i i don't know who that person is i hope they were either
2: stoned or blackout drunk at like 2 a.m when they sent us that
0: <laughs> sound like it like, hey, can we
2: play you, it one more time yeah let's play guy, it again uh you're my hero hit me up on twitter please <laughs> here, we, here, we here we go.
3: they say life is meaningless because everything changes but what if the meaning of life is changed change change
0: change I got nothing on that ma'am. all right let's that, that thank you for the, uh, the wise words call in again uh, what's the next let's hear the next one here we go hello my name is Michael and I have a question to ask everyone listening
2: so you along with everyone else on earth living or dead have been invited to a dinner party the question is who are you going to sit next to and why
0: Okay, Greg, if you were at a dinner party with all people who have ever lived and died, who would you sit next to? Oh, man.
1: Um, Can I get two? Sure. Um, You you got got one person on each side, right? Okay, cool, cool. Um, I sit next to my grandma. (laughs) I love my grandma. I miss my grandma. I was thinking about it yesterday. I love that. And, um...
0: Now, if I don't say that, I make you
1: feel like a monster. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I did it for YouTube. All right. Uh, and the other one, uh, man, I uh, fucking I don't know uh, King Tut. You know, uh, oh, maybe maybe to take a ham
0: deep cut. You
1: know, you know, I want to see that 16 year old body. <laughs> 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 see how they got him good. Uh, yeah, probably that King Tut and my grandma.
2: Yeah. Austin, you got an answer? I mean, my mom, of course, because, you know, I got to try to outdo Greg. Um, no, um, oh, fuck. Uh, I think I mean, for sure, Jesus, because I was raised Hello. in a Christian household and then I've kind of had my conversion in and out of. And so I want to know, like, all right, dude, tell us what the real deal is. I want to know who are you? What do you think about all this shit going on today? I'd want to sit next to Jesus on one side. And then I think a really super hot chick on the other side that was, like, really into me. So I don't know who she is, but it's that would nice. have to be the other one. So Because okay. then, cause then <laughs> I get spiritually fed, and then, like, hopefully I can have, uh, like, a fun night Physically maybe doing fed. some MDMA and, like, get naked <laughs> on the other side.
0: You know, the answer I have, I feel like, is more of what I would expect Austin to say but I would want to sit next to, on one side, I would want to sit next to Marshall McLuhan because I want him to tell me what he thinks about the age of the internet because he was prophesizing about how TV would change the way that we think and communicate and all that stuff. So I want to know what he has to say about the internet. And then... In the same vein, I would want to sit next to Baudrillard because I want him to tell me, <laughs> you know, like, what the fuck is up with the Internet? <laughs> um, but, of course, you know, my grandfather, who I never met, I'd want him to be on that side, too. Uh,
2: so, Yeah. That's another good answer. I mean, the problem is, is there's so many people, right? I could, yeah. I could literally list a thousand people. I'd love to sit next to Sartre. I'd love to sit next to, I'd love to sit next to Abraham Lincoln and be like, "Hey, man, you actually said some pretty racist shit. Do you realize that people oh, yeah. like, hold you up as being an icon and shit?" And then hear like, totally. "What does he actually think about things?" I'd love to sit next to thousands and thousands and thousands of different people. You know, um, it, it's such a hard one to be honest.
0: When you live in L.A., another thing is that you learn quickly that you don't want to meet your idols. That's so like on things. the one yeah. hand, <laughs> I'd like to sit next to Mozart, but he could be a dick, and
1: uh, probably was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> probably is a dick right now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Whatever is guys... cool is like the image that you have in your mind, right? You meet them and you're like, "Oh, they're kind of short and nerdy and dweeby. They're not like this cool superhero that they play on TV." So, that's always tough. Yeah.
1: Do you really do you guys think the internet is the is the death of human human beings? Uh... I'm starting I'm starting to think so. I, yeah, I am.
0: (laughs) You know, I recently read, Austin, I don't know if you're going to like this or not, but over my vacation, I read Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now book. I'm not going to like this. Which I didn't love the book, (laughs) but I did like, I did like parts of it. And, And, and for someone like me who is such a pessimist and who is such a technophobe, who hates the internet, it was nice having someone try to convince me that modern life is good, and that it's way better than it was thousands of years ago. Having said that, Mm. um, I don't know the internet. Yeah. I mean, there are some good things about it. We can't discount those, but I do not think human beings were meant or take meant out of the question. I don't think that it's good for them to be able to communicate this rapidly. And at this rate, I think that, uh, I just, yeah, I, I think that so much of what we're dealing with today, like even the whole culture war, I think that's really just a pathology that has been inundated on us through social media.
2: Mm.
1: Is it just the communication or is it just the act?
0: It's is communication it- and it's anonymity. Yeah.
1: Oh, but what about so much access to knowledge?
0: That's like, good.
1: Is it always good, though? I'm like, I'm, I don't... <laughs> maybe the access to knowledge without working to get it you know like back in the day you at least had to find it Mm -hmm. you know you at least had to look for it it's just the i can just type in somewhere and boom and then have the information you gotta know if it's actually correct you know what i mean i I just don't Can you imagine
0: 40 years ago if someone says like oh what was you know they just ask you some trivia question and you have to oh i have to go spend Two hours at the library <laughs> figuring it out, whereas now you literally just type it in and the answer, bam, immediately.
1: But I yeah. respect the person that had to look for it for two hours because you, of course, you really wanted to look for it. You looked, for, you probably found the right book. You probably didn't find all this bullshit about
2: Barack being Malcolm X's son,
1: you know what and I mean? It, <laughs> and it gives you patience
2: yeah. and well, work like, ethic. There's there's an episode of uh, How I Met Your Mother where they're all sitting around at the bar and I think they'd say like, "Oh, in 2009 if we had this conversation oh. before Google and then in like 2014 if we had the same conversation." I can't remember what it was, but it's something like they're sitting around and they're like, "Oh, how tall is the Empire State Building?" and they get into like this 4-hour long fight because they're They're trying to figure out how tall the Empire State Building is based on what they remember in school and this person's an architect or whatever. And then they fast forward to like the same thing in 2014. All you have to do is be like, oh, hold on. Let me just go to Wikipedia and you Google it. And they were kind of bemoaning this idea. And I think there's actually something really interesting in the criticism about how – you know, we don't get to, like, struggle with each other in conversation anymore and be like, w- what does this mean? And and we can just instantly access information. However, at the same time, I was hanging out with some friends last night, and they were asking me if I'd ever seen these fluffy chickens that they have in Australia. And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And they pulled up a picture immediately on their phone, and it made my life a little bit better because now I've seen a picture of a fluffy Australian chicken. True, true. And that's amazing. And now the world is so
0: back. now that he's seen no, a picture of a fluffy chicken. <laughs> I
1: mean, I, I, I do think it's a it's a – there is definitely a good with it but a part of me is like uh this is this isn't good <laughs> yeah. part, i just see like i mean this is right now guys think about all this access we have in 2018 you know and we're we're so young i mean this country's so young the world is so young uh i just i don't i don't see any good coming out of this as human beings we're not we're not good enough we're not a good enough species yet to deal with what we've created.
0: So, there's, mm-hmm. this, there's this great joke in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that Douglas Adams makes, and he talks about this thing called the Babblefish. Uh-huh. And the joke, I don't remember it verbatim, but he says that the Babblefish was one of the most revolutionary inventions. Basically, the idea is you take the fish, you put it in your ear, and it allows all languages to be immediately interpreted and that people can communicate all communication barriers are broken and yeah. the joke was that it's simultaneously the most revolutionary thing ever created and also the most the thing that wrought more destruction and harm and pain on the universe than anything else yeah. and he weaves the world words together to make it a much better joke but i always remember that one because to me that's the internet that's the internet baby yeah yeah well on that positive note we're yeah. going to sign off <laughs>
2: Yeah, we're all fucked. And by the way, the world's going to be destroyed by 2100 because of climate change uh, or climate breakdown anyway. So fuck it, right? Yeah, it's Randy. Have fun. (laughs) Well, we're going to have a
0: great big party. By the way, Greg and I and Ryan and Alec is actually flying in. We're doing a live show on the 26th at 10 p.m. in L.A. If you're in L.A. and you want to join us, hit up the Wisecrack Twitter. There's more details there. And if you guys want to send us a voicemail, it's 213-534-8807. Uh, greg, where can we find you on the internet?
1: Hey, you can find me on Twitter at Greg the Grouch. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Greg Comedy and my website is Gregcomedy.com. Check me out. And
2: we'll check definitely out check some out of Greg's art that he's been oh, doing. He I was just gonna really say sick that. Prints with redlining. Yeah. Oh, where are you? You go ahead, Jared. You you gotta No, no, no. You you beat me too it, man.
1: Well, my, my, my art website is gregedwardsart.com. Um I do a lot of cool art. If you want to print just hit me up uh, my, my email e 54 gmail.com is up there just hit me up and um, I'll send you a print I don't care where you are
0: and if any of you people are in the art world Greg should be getting rich people's stupid money for this art <laughs> so if anyone knows any Thank galleries you, or something I appreciate you yeah, guys let, so much yeah like Greg will know will you do like an at, art
2: performance where we can throw blood and bullets and cell phones at you and you speak in a posh British I accent want, I want
1: No. (laughs) Only if I can have my dick out. That's the only
2: way.
0: I want Greg to do a a Bob Ross kind of show. That would be fun. Yeah.
1: Hey, guys. (laughs) I have to start doing mushrooms again, though.
2: (laughs) All right, and Austin, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N. I also do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn, where some of these themes that I can only abbreviate, I know it doesn't seem like I'm being abbreviative, but I am, Uh, but I will elaborate them in full on this other podcast with my co-host Troy. So check that shit out if you would like.
0: All right, that's it for today, guys. We'll see you next week. Next week we are doing Synecdoche, New York. Charlie Kaufman movie, so we'll see you next week.
1: All the way from Hollywood, California!
0: See you guys. Peace. Later.